zip lining through the events of your life. You're probably wondering where is that in scripture? Well, I'm having to push it a little bit to get to that envelope, okay? Back in 2014, Bev and I had the opportunity to go with uh, Marvin and Eileen, uh, doctor, on one of those getaway trips down to Branson, Missouri. Many of you have probably had the same privilege to be on some of those trips over the last 20 years. But on this particular trip, we were at the Shepherd of the Hills Historic uh, homestead for part of what I think was a mystery day simply because we were all dressed in those blue t-shirts. So I'm guessing that was one of the mystery things that we were on. A few years before we were at Shepherd of the Hills, uh, the company had erected a 27-story tower in which when you were on the 27th floor, you could uh, you could look out over the property there and see all the mature trees that were on the Shepherd of the Hills property. And you can see part of Branson from a distance. And it was a, a neat look to look out from, from all those windows. But one floor down is where you could get on a zip line. And uh, there were four parallel zip lines uh, in this operation. And... Um, the other, when you were released on those cables, you were going down into the the valley or the canyon where they had their um, plays every night of the week and uh, the reenactments of those kinds of things. I have to say to you that for many, many years, when I was an assistant pastor and a youth minister, I had done all kinds of trips for the college and career group. So we went uh, bicycling trips multiple nights and days, and uh, we did uh, canoeing and rafting down the rivers and lakes in Illinois and Wisconsin and up into Canada. So I was enjoying all of those things and loved in my position to plan all of those exciting events. And so... That was a highlight of part of my ministry because when I got the kids away from church, away from their, their radios and telephones and stuff, I could minister to them in ways that I couldn't do when I had them in church services. And so, but all of that time, there were two events that I really, really wanted to, to uh, be involved in. One of them was hang gliding. I brought that to the elders, if I could do that with the young people, and they put a zero on that. It's, it was a good thing they did. Thank God for elders. Let's give them a hand, because they, they use their heads when the young people and young pastors sometimes aren't using theirs. But I also wanted to do some zip lining. I'd seen them in different places, and I, I desperately wanted to be in that kind of a place. But when we were down in Branson in 2014, I did not know that we would be where the zip liners were. And so um, I hadn't had a chance to, to persuade my life, my wife, about uh, being able to go. I want to tell you that when we walked down to that 26th floor where the zip lining, uh, I don't know, I can't use the word basket, but they were little seats that you crawled into and got strapped into, my wife did her dead-level best 
with all of the womanly expertise that women are noted for, to keep me from going on there. And she pointed to that sign up there above where you get in. And it said, if you have heart issues, you may not want to do this. And so I had had a triple bypass a few years back of that. And five years after my triple bypass, two of the veins had closed off again and they had to put stents in. And I'd gotten those stents roughly about a year before we were in Branson. And so anyway, um, uh, the warning was there. But um, I decided I really wanted to go no matter what my wife wanted me to do or not do. To put it mildly, I probably was a little stupid. They always said that I may be one brick short of a load. But at any rate, I wanted to go on this zip liner. The, the guide when we were on this, their uh, wagons was telling that just last year, a 103-year-old woman had gone down that zip line, that very zip line, not once, but two times. But he never bothered to tell whether or not she made it safely down that second time. I don't know. It wasn't said. But I figured if, if, um, if she could get down there, so could I. So that's what I was thinking. Now, Bev was thinking of something altogether different. Bev was thinking, I don't want to take a second husband home in a casket from Branson. <laughs> Her husband, Ernie, had passed away on a bus tour, not Marvin and Eileen's, but a different bus tour from Lincoln. And in the early morning hours, one morning, he passed away. So uh, she had that experience that I couldn't fully understand. But that's what she was thinking. So at any rate, when they released the four of us, we got all strapped into our seats and by the way, I brought a picture just in case you don't believe this preacher, okay? Bev's got the, the pictures of it. They cost more than the, the cost to go on the trip or on that zip line. But at any rate, when we got in there, they released the four of us together. And we just went out so nice and smooth. I was saying to myself, what was all of the fuss about anyway? This is easy and it was so enjoyable. We were sailing over all those mature oak trees on the property there. And, and the air was blowing through what hair was left on my head. And my glasses and my cap was all back in a zipper bag back there. There was nothing to it. And I, I was enjoying the ride, seeing all the scenery. And then for once in a while, uh, this little seat would turn left. And I could see over my left shoulder some of the others behind me. And I could... Uh, turned to the right, this thing, and I could see the others that were there. There were four of us. Uh, but I was out in front. I didn't realize why until I found out that the heavier you are, the faster you go. But at any rate, at, at one point, this thing faced forward and never moved left or right. And I saw this wall coming up really fast. And I thought, how am I going to get stopped? I'm really moving. How am I going to get stopped? They never said a word how you stopped. They only said that you could go down and a 103-year-old would do okay. So I was thinking, I, I can't tell you that I was in a panic, but I think my blood pressure went up a little bit. 
to not know exactly how that was going to stop. But at one point, when it looked like I was going to crash into this wall, at the end of this zip line, uh, the cable up above uh, hit these springs, and my feet flew up like that just in a second. And then pretty soon, in another second, they went back down where they were supposed to, and the cable sagged, and I unbuckled myself from there, got my stuff, and walked away shaken like a leaf. Now, I I want you to know that I have been deliberate about immersing you in this ride because I have a purpose and challenges to give to you this morning from the Word of God. And I want you to keep that experience in your mind of how nice and smooth and downward it went. And then we'll come back to that a little bit later. But at any rate... Um, I wanted you to catch that part. But I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of, of Acts chapter 19. It's on page 1726 if you're using the Pew Bible. And while you're looking it up, I want to mention to you that uh, I teach a Bible study every week at Eastmont Towers. And we're in the book of Acts. And I was... Uh, teaching from Acts chapter 19, and uh, the folks at, at the Bible study were following the journeys of the Apostle Paul as he was on these missionary journeys. And this is the third missionary journey in which Paul is in the city of Ephesus. Now, Paul had come, Paul had come to Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, He was actually just coming by boat to get off at Ephesus to catch another boat to go on to Jerusalem and Antioch to pay his vow to God in Jerusalem and then to speak to the people in Antioch at the church that was sending him out. And so um, Paul was only there talking in the synagogue just a few days and they begged him to stay and share the message of the gospel with them in the synagogues. But Paul had a mission, and that was to get to Jerusalem. And so he promised that he would come back. So after he had done what I said that he had gone for, he came back and he came through the country of Turkey. And he got to Ephesus, which is western part of Turkey. And they uh, welcomed him back, and he was preaching in the synagogue and reasoning with them about the message of Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at some point, at some point, uh, these people got their backs up and uh, he, he, he came against the people that didn't want to have or listen to him anymore. So after about three months preaching in the synagogues, he took some of the followers and they went to a school of Tyrrhenius. And there he taught during the middle hours, kind of like the siestas uh, that the Spanish people have uh, in the middle of the day. So he could rent the hall less uh, than at the beginning of the day or later on in the day and evening. And so he taught there for about four hours for two full years teaching the message of the gospel. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, look with me, chapter 19, verse 10. 
And this continued, this reasoning with people in, in this, that hall. And this continued for the space of two years so that all they who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the profound effect of Paul's preaching and teaching in that rented school or hall had an effect. We don't think that Paul left Ephesus to go into the rest of Asia, the western part along the Aegean Sea there, but we believe that his colleagues took the gospel to other towns in that uh, western part of what we now call Turkey. As a result, there were schools and then there were um, churches erected in those areas or where people met. It didn't occur to me, I know, I told you I already was a, a brick short of a load, but it never occurred to me that when you get to the book of Revelation, that's in 1914 is the page in the New Testament, 1914. It's, um, it's where the Apostle John is writing this book of Revelation. And the Apostle John is the only disciple that never died a violent death. But he was exiled on the island of Patmos. It's a rocky place. There's no place to do gardening and stuff like that. It's just a rocky place. He was exiled there. He never died a a violent death, but he died as an old man. And he had written the book of Revelation. And so if you will turn to 1914, I'm just going to point out title headings, and that's all. The book of Revelation. And if you turn it, if you've got a study Bible, you'll find that the author of Revelation, just before chapter 1, is John. And if you look over, it'll also tell you that the date was C, which is circa, or about 95 A.D. So John the Apostle, exiled to this island of Patmos, is writing a letter to these seven churches of Asia that had been started by Paul and his colleagues. Now remember, they were hot. On the Word of God. They were going great. They were really studying. They were learning. And they were on the ball. But a mere 30 years later, John is writing the book of Revelation. And I want you to notice just a couple of things. Look at chapter 2 now, verse 1. I'm going to read only the warning to Ephesus. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Listen to what he says. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how you cannot bear those who are evil. Thou hast tried them that say they are apostles, and they are not, and found them Liars. So that's the commendation John gives to the church in Ephesus 30 years after Paul has started it. Going on, verse 3. And you have borne and hast patience for thy my name's sake. You have labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because you have left your first love. His remedy is this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, 
and repent. So remember and then repent. Repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the lampstand that, and take it out of its place, except thou repent. And he goes on and says some more things. Now, if you look at chapter 2, verse 12, and just look at the heading if you've got a reference Bible. It says it's the message to Pergamon. Turn your page to chapter 2, verse 18 now. Did I do all of them? Let me see. So it was the church at Ephesus and then the church at Smyrna, verse 8, and the church of Pergamon in verse 12, and then chapter 2, verse 18, the message to Thyatira. There's four churches already. Chapter 3, verse 1. You can see I'm moving fast. That's the message to Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 7, the message to Philadelphia. And chapter 3, verse 14, the message to Laodicea. So John the Apostle is writing these warnings to these churches. He's got, most of the time, he's got a word of commendation to the church for what they're doing and doing well. But in every case, I think but one, there is a warning. Now, why do I share this? It's simply because, uh, well, let me ask you this. How many of you have been a part of this church for 30 years? Raise your hand and keep them up. Look around. At least half of you, I think, have been with this church for at least 30 years. How many? 40 years, maybe. Oh, still a lot. How about 50? You're keeping them up? 60? Oh, my. So, I'm saying to you that within your lifetime, you could have seen what happened in these churches. To think that they were on fire for God when Paul was there... And they were so hungry for the word of God, they devoured whatever they could get. And they were sharing that message so that the whole western part of Turkey, as we know it today, was evangelized. Every Jew and Greek heard that message. How many people do you think here in Firth has heard the message of the gospel? Do you know? Probably not. But do you think maybe that half of them have heard the message of the gospel somewhere? Who knows? But I can tell you that's a small microcosm of our whole state and a smaller one yet than of our nation that have heard about the message of the gospel. So in 30 years, they went from being on fire for God down to being kind of lukewarm. In fact, one of the cases he said, you're like Luke." Uh, warm water, and I just spit you out of my mouth. Most of us, when we're thirsty, we want something cold. It doesn't have to be ice cold, but at least cool. And lukewarm water, we can't take it. <laughs> and so if you can think of that, if you can get it in your mind, how quickly, how rapidly these churches went downhill. They still had a message. They still had um, some impact in where, where they had been. But to go back to that Ephesian place, all they who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. But not only did they hear the message, but Paul had an impact of healing, diseases and things. That's in the next verses of that same chapter. Now Luke, who was the writer of this book, was indicating to us that Paul's preaching had an incredible impact in the day. 
So what I wanted you to catch is just how quickly they had lost their first love. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was, as they best they could figure, was a little bit was between two and three years, at least two years, three months. He was in Ephesus alone, and in that preaching. So they figured that was somewhere between sixty-four and sixty-six A.D. It was be, just before he lost his life, maybe a year or two, uh, <clears throat> when excuse me, when um, Nero was the emperor of Rome. But who would have thought when we think about our own church sometimes or our own country, how different and how far have we fallen in some of the things that we used to uh, accept that was accepted by everyone? Who would have ever thought that we would see today full-term babies being aborted? Who would have ever thought that could have ever happened 30 years ago or 50 years ago? Who would have ever thought that we had to be careful with how we spoke to be so that we were more politically correct? Sometimes we really struggle with that, don't we? Or who would have ever thought that when we as individuals who go to this church and who regularly accept the teachings of the Word of God would be called bigoted because we stand for some of the things that the Word of God preaches and teaches? Who would have ever thought? But that's the realities of our day in which we live. Now, many of you could find it easy in a conversation like around the coffee a little bit later or maybe during the week with over a cup of coffee about who might be the cause of all of this and pass over the very thing that I think we need to understand is that it's not so much as we point our fingers at so-and-so, this political figure or that one or something like that, And we miss the fact that much of what has changed has been ourselves, individually. We are not so much involved in our own Bible study or reading the Word of God. And I think if there's one thing that we lack the most, it's in our prayer life. And I want to tell you, I love to do this. I love to be in the pulpit. I love, especially since I'm retired, and there's been times where I've gone weeks and and uh, Pastor, um, um, oh goodness, now I forgot your first name. Anyway, he's been a, a minister for 60 years or better. And we, as retired people, we're filling the pulpits all over the place. So we get to see a sense from many different denominations, uh, the, the kind of the flavor and the atmosphere of our churches. And they're changing, folks. They're changing. And prayer is one of those that has changed. And um, I, have a, I have two laymen that have an incredible influence on my life. One here in Lincoln and one up in Wisconsin from a former church that I served up there. Uh, they can talk to me and know that I'm not going to get upset with them because they really, really are, are men on the ball for God. And... And I think that there's one thing that I do that I struggle the most with because I like to be busy. I like to fill the pulpits. I like to teach Bible studies. I like to do chapels at Eastmont and, and other places. But the issue I want to get across is how busy we can get. And I don't do this. I don't like to sit very much. 
I like to be doing something. Bev's the same way. And she's speaking all the time with women's groups all over their nine-state region. Well over 200 times she has spoken. And we love to be on the ball, on the doing, but I'll tell you, it can kill you spiritually. It can get you so busy that you don't do the praying that you need to do. I struggle with it all the time. I know that we have our devotions and... and. Um, we have several devotion books, but there's times when three, four days go by because we have been so busy. Could that be possible, an issue that you're struggling with? So that what you used to be when you first came to faith in Christ, you're no longer doing some of those things. You're no longer hungry. And can I say another thing that kind of kills us on our joy and our faith in Christ is that we are no longer sharing our faith with just neighbors and friends and acquaintances. We, when we're in our churches, and our churches are on the ball, they're, they're teaching classes in Sunday school, they're teaching Bible studies, and we can learn, and we are learning, and we learn rapidly at the moment you come to know Christ as Savior, and then for a while, and then you start, I already know that. I already know that. I already know that too. But the thing that keeps us sharp in our faith growth is when we share our faith. Because we realize there's a lot of people that don't know anything about the Bible. One time I got a chance uh, to share, uh, to pass out New Testaments with Gideons, with my best friend in my hometown area. And we were at Western Illinois University handing out these New Testaments. And I had an area uh, where the students were coming on the campus to go to classes. And so they were moving pretty fast. They got their backpacks and hanging on one shoulder and they're moving. And so I'm going up and handing them a, a Bible, a New Testament. And, and I have a little word or two for them to say, no, there's a lot of things in the front of that, that if you're struggling with um, temptation, there's some verse there. You can look it up. It's got a page number. You don't have to worry about finding it. And, and this one person is one after another, just like it, who never have ever seen a Bible. Can you imagine in America, people that have never seen a Bible? My goodness, what happened? But I tell you, we keep on growing as we share our faith. We don't have to be expertise as you expect preachers to be. But I want to tell you, people will listen to you better than they will listen to us on the street. When I had an opportunity to train uh, my parishioners up in the Wisconsin church to share their faith, I had them, each one, write up their testimony, and I would take them out two times. The first one, I'd take them out and, and introduce them. These were usually people that had came to the church for the first time. And so I would do the, the things. Is you just visit with people, and then I would have my new learner share their testimony of how they came to faith in Christ because they talk about what their life had been like. They talk about what happened that changed their life and what their life has been like after they got saved. And so I noticed right off the bat that these people in whose homes we had gone were far more interested in hearing their neighbor or a person they already knew and their testimony than they did in what the minister had to say from the Word of God. 
I, that was just amazing. But I want to tell you, we could easily talk about that, but how many of us have ever been concerned enough about somebody living next door to me, you or somebody else, or about the, the situations in our world today and done a self-assessment? I'm talking about just you thinking where you're seated or later on after the service, thinking about, okay, what has happened in my own life? What did I used to be like? Did I used to spend more time in prayer or reading the Bible? And why am I not doing it now? It is almost unbelievable how imperceptibly we move from this being on fire for the Lord and we come to this point. We don't know when we got here. It has been so imperceptible. So we need to check on that on ourselves and do an assessment. Find out what it is that makes uh, God happy. So I want to say, as I go back to this illustration at the beginning, sometimes we are so busy ziplining through our life. We're just going through. Yes, sometimes we hit a bump. Sometimes we have things that, uh, that get us to look around us to see what's going on. But if for the most part, many of us do pretty well. The only times we hit a snag is when we have something physical that happens to us. Or we lose a job. Or um, a spouse decides to leave you. And then those are the hiccups in life. But for the most part, we do pretty good. And we're ziplining through life. Everything is easy. But there's going to be a wall sometime. <laughs> there's going to be a place where you're going to stop. And we need to know, and we need to help our neighbors to know how we safely get down from ziplining down into a valley. You've got the answers. And sometimes your neighbors don't. And that's why God wants to use us. And use us in a, in a special way. So I want to challenge each one of you to do a personal assessment. Just sit and think. God will give you guidelines and thoughts that will help you. I know he will. And I want to challenge you to do uh, to enough to actually make changes. Not to just think back and then go away, but to think about it and then, okay, I could change this or I'm going to change or try to. Let me tell you, if you come to the point where you're going to make a change, you're going to have resistance. You just will. Satan doesn't want you to get back in the Word of God. He doesn't want you to get back praying. He doesn't want that kind of growth. He doesn't want you sharing your faith with anybody else. So there'll be resistance. Expect it. Expect that the climb back up will not be as smooth as that zip lining down in your world. I want to leave you with this other challenge. <laughs> And I found this, of all places, at the Osceola Cheese, by the way, folks. How many of you have been to Osceola Cheese? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Well, this is quite a place. It's, it's something every person ought to stop at once in a while in their lifetime. But this place, this trip, over a week ago, was so busy with, I don't know, was there five buses there or more than five buses? And you got 50-some passengers in a bus. There's a bunch. And you can't get up to sample the cheeses anyway. So I was back in the um, 
knick-knack place and just kind of looking at things. And this is what I found. It hit me. I hope it hits you the same way it hit me. And this is a plaque. It was only about this wide, but about this long. And this is what it said. Live in such a way that people who know you but don't know God will come to know God because they know you. I'll say it again. Live in such a way that those who know you but don't know God will come to know God because they know you. That's a big load of hay to drop on you today, but I'm giving it to you because I really believe that you and I are the answer in the slide from being on fire for God to recovering that momentum spiritually, individually, and in our churches and our nation.